the main areas are going to be if you default on your vendor finance terms, what's the security and how does the vendor enforce that security? And on the other hand, for a purchaser, the purchaser ends up saying, well, the only reason I'm defaulting is because the cash flow hasn't generated in the way you promised me it would when I bought this business from you. So they're, they're typically the fertile grounds for how these disputes explode out of control. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 292 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. What does a vendor finance arrangement look like? When do you use them and for what and how much do they actually cost? And what happens if the vendor wants to cancel the arrangement? These are just some of the questions Jeff Steen of Brownwright Steen Lawyers in Sydney will discuss with you in this episode. Vendor finance arrangements or vendor finance agreements, better said. So vendor finance agreements, are they usually the second choice? So both parties would usually prefer a bank loan, but since it's much harder nowadays to get a bank loan, people revert to vendor finance agreements? It depends on the deal. Right? It, it really does. If you're a vendor, obviously you want the cash as soon as possible. So you're not that keen to give vendor finance. You may do so if the terms of that vendor finance means that you can get a higher price. So sometimes you do, you might provide vendor finance because you know that you can get more capital value for the asset that you're selling. Are vendor finance agreements more common nowadays because the banks are more reluctant to loan? I wouldn't say they're more common. Uh, what I would say is that they're more popular in different areas. So, for example, for professional services firms, particularly if you're selling interests in a continuing practice, so you're allowing a partner, you're selling down a partnership interest, for example, it's quite common to do that with a vendor finance arrangement. With some related party transactions, quite often there'll be a vendor finance component to it, uh, whether that's to make up the difference between the cash consideration and the market value, or just to make sure that the estate planning works properly and that the appropriate amount's being paid by the right people. And is it vendor finance arrangement or vendor finance agreement? I think both work. The vendor finance arrangement probably describes the totality of the transaction and vendor finance agreement just describes the narrow part, which is the terms of the vendor finance. Yes, yes, good point. And is the arrangement usually about the entire purchase price or is it very common to just make it about a portion of it so let's say the buyer has to put 50% of the purchase price onto the table and then the other half is vendor finance arrangement or do you usually see arrangement that cover pretty much 100% of the purchase price I'm going to say you occasionally very occasionally see arrangements which are 100% of the purchase price It's far more common that the vendor finance is only to cover a gap. And it usually is to cover the gap that is re in relation to how many clients stay and how many clients leave? Well, not necessarily. It's more around um, the gap to get a better price. And in some occasions, it's to cover GST gaps. So, for example, one context where vendor finance is, is, is becoming more popular is where there's a GST transaction and the vendor effectively 
lends the purchaser the GST price until the GST, the purchaser can get the input credit. So you might have a three-month vendor finance arrangement. When an accounting practice is sold, that is usually subject to GST? No, not necessarily. An example might be we're selling an asset that doesn't comprise the whole of the going concern. And, and so it's going to be a GST taxable supply and the purchaser needs to pay a price which is plus GST from what had otherwise been negotiated. So the vendor might say, I will lend you the GST amount on the basis that you must pay it to me as soon as you're getting your import credit. So I'll, I'll lend it to you for 30 days or I'll lend it to you for 90 days and I expect the that amount to then to be, be paid because I know you're going to finance it by getting the credit. So let's say there's an accounting practice and 50% of their clients are business clients and the other 50% are SMSF clients and the accounting practice now decides that they only want to do SMSF so they sell the business clients and since it's not the entire practice that sale of business clients would be subject to GST since it's not a going concern sale and so then that GST component might be subject to vendor finance arrangements. Yeah, that's a good example. That's a really good example. What does a vendor finance arrangement usually look like in comparison to a cash sale? So a cash sale, I think, is very straightforward. It's either an asset sale or a share sale, but the purchaser puts the full money on the table and then ownership of everything crosses. However, there is usually a clause that the purchase price gets adjusted based on how many clients leave. So that probably means that it's almost never that for an accounting practice or a bookkeeping practice, it's almost never that the purchaser puts the entire price on the table straight straight away. It only pays, for example, two thirds and then one third is adjusted based on how many clients stay, correct? Yeah, and that's the normal transaction. So let's just say that's the base of the transaction. But what's critical is when you're negotiating that transaction, so say, Heidi, you're going to sell a consulting practice on that basis to me or an accounting practice to me, and I'm saying to you, Heidi, I'm prepared to offer you 90 cents in the dollar for your, your whip. And you say, look, that's not enough. And I say to you, well, this is all the bank's prepared to lend to me. You know, we've had a Royal Commission about lending practices and I, I, I don't think that I can afford the cash flow to be able to service the loan. And you say to me, look, don't worry about that. I think you can um, do the cash flow. I will lend you the last 10% of what I want. And I say, well, if you're lending me the money and, and you say, yeah, I'll, I'll lend it to you over a three-year period, I say, okay, then, you know, I'll, I'll concede because I'm a, a, a poor negotiator. And I'll say, you know, yes, Heidi, I'll, I'll pay you 100 cents in the dollar now on the basis that I'm going to give you 90 cents up front, which I'm borrowing from the bank and you will lend me the last 10 cents. It's funny that you say 90%, 90 cents on WIP. Is it possible that legal practices are more sold based on WIP? Because accounting practices and tax agents, etc., they have a lot of recurring revenue. Hence, WIP is not really so relevant. If I said 90 cents on WIP, I didn't mean 90 cents on WIP. I said 90 cents in the dollar. So what it is on, on fees, usually. Okay, and accounting good. practice is usually sold on a percentage of fees rendered. Legal practices, question one is, says it depends on the type of practice as to what's there. So quite often a legal practice that has a lot of work in progress will be sold. What you're selling is the key asset is the work in progress, which obviously is not a capital amount, but still relevant 
in terms of the discussion we're having, which is, is it vendor finance? You already alluded to my next question, and that is uh, vendor finance arrangements, of course, pose a higher risk on the seller. Hence, the seller needs to be compensated for it, for this risk. And that is usually be done through a higher purchase price. So not through interest or any other form of payment. It's just a higher purchase price. They can be done with interest. It de again, it depends on how the deal's been negotiated. But typically for a vendor... A vendor is going to want to structure the deal where the vendor is receiving a higher capital payment and will build that return into that capital payment because on an after-tax payment basis, the vendor is better off getting a capital receipt for a higher amount than getting a capital receipt for a lower amount and a component of interest on that lower capital receipt. Yeah, capital is always better because with capital, you have 50% CGT discount and you get all the small business CGT concessions. Hence, capital is always better. Yeah, and hence, yeah, happy birthday, Merry Christmas. <laughs> okay, next question, debt or equity. I read that they are, that you can either do a debt vendor finance arrangement or an equity vendor finance arrangement. And I assume an equity vendor finance arrangement just means you, rather than pay, that part of your purchase price is just shares in the new entity that is acquiring the the business. I can imagine most commonly it is a debt vendor finance arrangement, correct? I have never come across something that I would describe as an equity vendor finance arrangement. The only thing that it may refer to is for some deals, so some deals that you might do with a um, private equity firm or a, uh, a venture capitalist involve We will sell you down. We're, we're, the venture capital might say, Heidi, I'm going to buy 75% of your business now and I'll buy the other 25% in three years' time. And we might have a put and call option or some agreement as to the base upon which I might buy the extra 25% or the last 25% of the business. But I, I wouldn't describe that as a conventional vendor finance arrangement. Yes. So usually vendor finance arrangements are always debt arrangements. Yes. Are vendor finance arrangements usually more expensive than straightforward bank loan? It depends on risk and security. So quite often the vendor finance arrangement it will only require security over the assets that have been sold. They won't necessarily require security over real property that's owned elsewhere on the basis that the vendor knows the value of the asset that the vendor is selling and knows that they can take it back if there's a default. Typically, the interest is priced into the capital. So the interest ends up being priced into the capital proceeds that the vendor is asking for on a vendor finance basis. It's very difficult to compare then. Yes, I appreciate that. Now, accounts receivable, both past and current, in a cash sale, it is quite straightforward in terms of that all accounts receivable go across to the um, buyer And then the purchase price might be adjusted later on, but the accounts receivable are basically just sold like any other assets, correct? In a cash sale. Yes. Good. Now, it gets a lot more complicated in a vendor finance arrangement because in a vendor finance arrangement, of course, the money that is coming through the accounts receivable, that's exactly the money that is then meant to be paying out the seller. Hence, the seller has a lot more interest in the accounts receivable and hence will probably also want to retain some legal control of the accounts receivable. How are accounts receivables handled in a vendor finance arrangement? It can be done in a couple of ways. So 
when you're buying a business, you can buy the business on the basis that the accounts receivable remain with the vendor. And you can buy the business on the basis that the accounts receivable are assigned to the purchaser. And you can do it on the basis that the purchaser will collect the accounts receivable on behalf of the vendor. And do you split between old accounts receivable and new accounts receivable? Yeah, it, it becomes quite tricky when you've got your clients because you need, if you're, if you're negotiating the deal, you if you're acting for a vendor, you need to make sure the deal is that whenever a customer pays, the oldest debts get paid first. And so that means the money would first go to the accounts receivable that probably stayed with the vendor, and then only more recent money will go to the accounts receivable that the buyer earned already now with his new work. Yeah, that would be the, the plan. Again, if you're acting for a vendor, if you're acting for a purchaser, you probably remain silent on it. Yes. So it's quite common in a vendor finance arrangement that the accounts receivable stay with the uh, vendor. It is quite common that that's the case. Yeah. So that means in a vendor finance arrangement, you usually have an asset sale and not a share sale. No, not necessarily. If you've got a share sale, you're just calculating what is the value of the accounts receivable. And what you will do is you'll have a, an adjustment payment. So typically, you'll say the accounts receivable are, are to be determined at completion date. So let's say that's 30 April. And you say, right, the, the average um, debts should be all, all paid within 60 days so that by the time we get to 30 June, if any of those accounts receivable haven't been paid, then there's an adjustment on price. Or there might be a deferred instalment to reflect some adjustment that needs to be made down the track. And that can also be attributable to the purchase price of the shares. So it doesn't follow that just because you don't know whether the receivables are all collectible, that it must be a sale of business transaction or sale of shares transaction. Now, coming to the cancellation of a contract, I can imagine in a cash sale, it is quite unusual to have a cancellation clause in the contract because most of the money has changed hands and it's an outright sale. But I can imagine that in a vendor finance arrangement, you basically always have a cancellation clause because the vendor's ability to be paid very much depends on the buyer's performance. Hence, if the vendor loses confidence that the buyer can generate the cash flow to pay him out, then, of course, the seller wants to cancel the contract. Is that right? I'm not actually sure what type of deal you're constructing here <laughs> because if you're a vendor and you are providing a vendor finance arrangement, part of that arrangement ought to be that you're taking security over the asset. And if you're taking security over the asset that you've sold, then part of that security could be, not necessarily, but could be, well, I want to know that if there's a material adverse event or you've done, you, you haven't complied with the relevant system or done whatever you've promised you were going to do, then I can step in. But as a, a purchaser, why would I agree to that? Why would I agree? Because I would be saying, well, you're warranting to me that this business is a good business. If you don't believe in the business, why should I pay you what you're asking for? So is it unusual to have a cancellation clause in a vendor finance arrangement? Well, what's a cancellation clause, Heidi? So basically to, to claw it all back, to basically say, no, sorry, you're not getting my practice. But under what circumstances are you going to do that? Because once you've, once you've either sold the practice on a cash basis or you haven't sold the practice yet, And if you've, if you've entered into a contract to sell the practice and you cancel it without being entitled to do so, then you're going to hold yourself out. You know, you're going to be at a significant risk. 
And if you're entitled to do so because the purchaser hasn't paid the first instalment when that instalment is due, assuming that the contract means time is an essential term, then you're entitled to to terminate the contract. So usually in a vendor finance arrangement, the vendor keeps the old accounts receivable and we usually have a clause that money paid first goes to the oldest receivables. But then after that, it's basically the payment doesn't really normally depend on how the practice is performing. It's just a payment schedule. Every year for the next three years, every year you're going to transfer $100,000 to me. So in total, $300,000. Once that is done, the practice is all yours. And then if you don't pay the $100,000, then I can cancel and take my practice back. Correct. Apart from failing to pay an installment, it's usually unusual to have a cancellation clause in there. Yes. It is unusual. What happens if the seller does cancel the vendor finance arrangement? What happens with the new accounts receivables? So let's say the new buyer took over the practice, ran it for six months, did create new accounts receivable and new sales, and now I want to cancel. What happens with those new accounts receivable that are now sitting there? If we sold the business or if we sold the, um, sold the shares? Okay, so it depends on that. So if we've sold the shares, then the accounts receivable will still be rendered by the, the practice company. Entity. Yeah. If we've sold the business, then let's just say I'm the buyer, then I have rendered those assets. So I'm entitled to it. And it comes back to what have you got security over? Okay. So it really comes down to the contract, what the contract says. Absolutely. As it normally does, Heidi. Yes, I know. And what happens if the contract is silent on this? Then it comes back to common law, what previous court cases said, and hence then you need a lawyer to understand what previous court cases said, correct? No, there will there will be a contract, but the issue is how you interpret that contract. So it'll be mostly in writing and it might be partly verbal, but there might be some assertion that part of the contractual terms are verbal. It's a matter of the court to decide what is the terms of this deal. It's not really a common law interest to it. It's simply what's the terms of the deal that's been agreed. And sometimes, hopefully most of the time, hopefully all of the time, you can have those manifested in writing and that's the way it ought to be. But occasionally you'll get deals which are not in writing. So, for example, you and I could do a handshake deal and say this is the deal and then you're still up, even though it's not in, in uh, documented anywhere, if you default, because I'm not defaulting, Heidi. Um, but if you default, then you know it's up to a court to to decide what what are the terms of that default. Did you in fact default, or you know, are you you might then say no, I've complied with the terms. That that wasn't it, and then it becomes up to both of us to say these are the terms and what does a judge believe. Is this daily bread and butter for a commercial lawyer? Um, it's not unusual, but it, again, it it depends on the the context. So. You know, vendor finance arrangements, the context that, that they're more common is, is, again, GST lending has been quite common. They're quite common in, in professional practices where an older practitioner might be selling to a younger practitioner and want to make sure that they're coming on board and, and make them, it smooth for them. And they're quite common in arrangements where somebody's negotiating an amount just to get over the top of what it is that they want. So to get a, a greater capital sum. And they say, look, I've got confidence in this business. I, I will finance you the last bit. They're less common, much less common where you've got, uh, where you're selling out to a, a large public company or a private company where they've got a uh, banking interests because the bank doesn't really want to compete with the vendor finance. 
what are the most common points of contention with vendor finance arrangements? Are they a breeding ground for conflict or do most of them are smooth sailing? And if they are a breeding ground for conflict, which points usually lead to conflict? All contracts are breeding grounds for conflict. <laughs> no, but but in, in seriousness, the, the, the main areas are going to be if you default on your vendor finance terms, what's the security and how does the vendor enforce that security? And on the other hand, for a purchaser, the purchaser ends up saying, well, the only reason I'm defaulting is because the cash flow hasn't generated in the way you promised me it would when I bought this business from you. So they're, they're typically the grounds, uh, the fertile grounds for how these disputes explode out of control. Welcome back. So with vendor finance arrangements, it all comes down to the contract or how to interpret the contract. In the next episode, episode 293, Ian McLean of Bush Agribusiness will talk about the opportunity costs of focusing too hard on saving tax. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.